Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us tonight is the man who is always on the fastest route, Joseph Wren. I don't know if it's the fastest route, but it's the one the GPS gave me, and it's going to get me to my destination on time. Good evening, all of you gruesome people. If this is the first time you've listened to the Fright Lab, you picked episode four of a series. I'm going to need you to go back and listen to three other episodes and come back to this one. Lucas, how are we doing tonight? I'm feeling great, actually. Um, So I'm not a guy who plays a lot of horror video games, but... Uh, earlier this week, I beat the campaign of Ghostwire Tokyo. Well done, sir. Man, what a great game. And uh, what a great game. And the expansion level where they have you investigate a haunted middle school is genuinely freaky. It's so much fun. Uh, most horror video games are nothing but long form uh, jump scare fests. And this one is so different. And it's it's blended with a lot of interesting like Japanese mythology and Japanese symbolism, but you're in modern day Shibuya. It's a neat game, and you should check it out. If you're a video gamer, uh, Ghostwire Tokyo, it's well worth it. Remind me to put Clock Tower, the original, oh, on our wow. list. That, there's a name I haven't heard in ages. Holy crap. So over the last three episodes, we have been discussing what I describe as horror cinema verite. This is a set of filmmaking techniques and conventions attempting to emulate nonfiction recordings. When you think of what's commonly called found footage films, this is what I'm referring to, along with faux documentaries and fake ghost hunting uh, documentaries or mockumentaries. And so I know what you're thinking. What's left to discuss? Well, allow me to explain. One thing I deeply love about horror as a genre is that it's constantly in motion. It's evolving and mutating, taking on new shapes every year. Romance? Well, it might always just be romance. But horror isn't always dream-powered serial killers or giant kaiju monsters. Horror is responsive to changing time periods, new technologies, and social conditions. As I intend to illustrate in the course of this episode, we are in the midst of new forms of horror beginning to hatch. The newest egg clutch has a great deal to say about technology, the modern era, and how we relate to the media around us. Tonight, we're also going to be addressing something of an elephant in the room, I think. We'll dig deeper on this subject later on in the episode, but I want to set your expectations accordingly. I want to ask a question. After an art form becomes democratized, what does the next iteration of that art form look like? Let's allow that concept to simmer as we dig into a handful of films and pieces of horror media that you may or may not have heard of. To start, we're going to talk about two films that I think represent the best commentaries on the current state of media and technology. Those movies are host from 2020 and 2022's Deadstream. I also enjoy these movies outside of my appreciation for their content, so let me say this now. If either of them sounds even remotely interesting to you, you should put them on the top of your movie viewing queue. So, let's start with Host. Filmed and released in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020, Host follows a group of friends who decide to take part in a seance over the video conferencing platform Zoom. The plot is actually fairly predictable in the regards that seances in cinema always seem to conjure up a malicious entity, right? So where's the originality? Where is the high concept here? Hi guys. Hey guys. Hey. 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 Amy, was that you? I heard it. Mm -hmm. I heard something. I think there's something here. Do you see that? Oh, Emma, no. that's funny. 
we've connected with something. We gotta keep going. We gotta talk to it. This is no good. I told you not to disrespect the spirits. It could be something demonic. Hey, this is all your fault. Not my fault. This is your fault. I'm gonna turn the filters off. Come on. Host's director, Rob Savage, decided to use Zoom as his recording medium instead of attempting to emulate it. True to form, the film runs just under an hour, precisely like an unpaid membership to Zoom allows. So in 57-ish minutes, this movie has to set up and knock down all the necessary horror movie pins, and it does so masterfully. Host wastes no time at all getting you acquainted with your cast, your, your setting, and then setting up that tension. And in short order, the scares are really flowing. Even without the confines of pre-vaccine COVID-19, this would be an impressive feat. The aesthetics of this film matches and facilitates like the entire conceit. Uh, Joe, prior to COVID-19, how often were you using video conferencing services to meet with friends and family? Not very often. I think before the pandemic, a lot of the video conferencing technology was a specialist tool used by people in the technology industry or by people that have iPhones and have been using FaceTime for a long time. Um, outside of that, there weren't really other known options that everyone was using. But, and yes, I know Skype is a thing. They still haven't fixed their audio quality issue from over a decade ago. Therefore, I choose not to mention them. <laughs> um, but I think during that time, everybody had to become very familiar very quickly with how this video conferencing thing works. And despite some of the growing pains, Zoom was the one that caught on. I was amazed. But now everybody thinks of Zoom the same way you think of your iPhone as a smartphone. It's just your iPhone. Yeah, it's become ubiquitous like Google in many regards. It's like Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only, you know, not like... Anyway, you get the joke. <laughs> I find that Host makes a pretty sharp commentary on the times it was filmed in and in the way that technology at that time worked. Even the best adjusted people I knew had a hard time dealing with the constraints that the pandemic created. Humans are social primates, and we kind of need to be around other primates. Even a cynical guy like me needed his community, you know? The often grainy, low-quality picture, uh, you know, that commercial webcams and front-facing phone cameras, th those things have a very distinct look. Combine those previous points with the imprecise way services like Zoom end up looking, and it gives host this very emblematic thing of an era. During the worst part of the pandemic, many of us were reasonably cautious and we were worried about a metaphorical attacker we couldn't see that could harm us or worse. And in the inky shadows of a Zoom call, it's not totally impossible that we might think we see that same awful thing lurking, whether or not that's the threat of a pandemic illness or some sort of conjured ghost. Our protagonists in Host are, as the sayings of the time went, alone together and in a quote-unquote new normal. That meant even being hunted by an angry specter. Host captures the dread of an era, telling us that even a web platform might be an unsafe, scary place. And this is a current version of something you've seen in Paranormal Activity or Rec where we're using the imperfections of the camera to create some of the tension. You know, artifact correction is something that you see with digital cameras for over 20 years now. And to see how they use the imperfections to add to that tension of, is there something? Could there be something? What is going on with my camera that it thinks it sees something? This is a concept that I think will be scarier in the next five years as this wonderful word we keep hearing AI expands to video platforms. 
Yeah, yeah. And as a personal aside, uh, I watched Host within a day or two of it coming out on Shudder. Uh, I was really impressed with its storytelling, special effects, and most of all, its brevity, right? The, the standard Zoom call is an hour long. It hit me that even if I hadn't liked the movie, if I hadn't enjoyed the movie, it wouldn't have felt like I'd wasted my entire day watching it. Uh, I also felt that it might be something of an unsubtle metaphor for the time it was created and set in, right? Alienation is a universally scary thing. But did host need to be subtle to work? Uh, I'm not convinced that it could be subtle and work simultaneously. The media used to create the film, such as Zoom, webcams, uh, earbud microphones, that sort of thing, uh, prevented subtlety from really occurring here. Many of the scares of this film, uh, outside of the atmosphere it creates, is from jump scares. I'm typically not a fan of jump scare-laden events, as you all know, but here I think it was actually necessary. They were creative, and they somehow feel fresh. I imagine that a handful of people will agree with that thought. Wild times can require unsubtle approaches. You know, you were talking about like uh, data artifacting and things like that. It reminds me in a lot of ways the way VHS, uh, a subject we will kind of touch on here in a few minutes, makes movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre a lot scarier. Watching a really clean dub of it, it loses some of its grittiness. And I think grit is something people are obsessed with. I, in a word, I think people are obsessed with keeping it real, quote unquote. And we'll kind of get to our thinking about that later on. Anytime we see a real upswing in terms of democratization of a medium or an art, things have a tendency to just become unsubtle. The democratization of our communication technologies and platforms are really no different. Sometimes these unsubtle approaches just club us over our heads. And sometimes they make you genuinely laugh out loud. Last year, Joseph and Vanessa Winter released their comedy, horror, cinema verite thing, Deadstream, to loud fanfare. The crowds loved it, and for good reason. Deadstream is that rare sort of horror comedy film that actually succeeds at being both scary and genuinely funny. Here's the rough plot. Sean Ruddy is essentially a YouTuber going through a bit of a hard time. He hosts a popular series where he performs dumb stunts based on what he's afraid of. Which is apparently a lot. After what amounts to a public shaming, Sean has decided to confront one of his deepest fears. Spending a night in a haunted house. But instead of picking a location and faking out the details, Sean has chosen a long-abandoned house known for its over-the-top dark spiritual activity. And he's going to live stream himself there all night with no possibility of escape. This is Sean Ruddy coming to you live from Death Manor. For seven years now, you have watched me face my fears for your entertainment. There is one fear that I haven't yet faced. I will be spending one night alone in a haunted house. Don't forget to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button and follow me on Livid. This is the most haunted house in the United States. Death Manor was built in 1880. Mildred lived here for eight years in this house. She sold her soul to the devil. I understand why you do what you do. I think that at the dawn of the quote-unquote YouTuber era, when characters like the Paul brothers were just getting started, this movie would seem absurd. But after what, a decade of the meteoric rise and then predictable falls of these e-celebs, well, Deadstream just hits hard. 
It feels like a spot-on send-up of the ridiculous things that our newest varieties of celebrities end up taking hits over. Sure, we don't see Sean Reedy, who is hilariously portrayed by Joseph Winter, poking around Aoki Gahara, better known as the Japanese suicide forest. But we can imagine him making an ass of himself in many other awful ways, <laughs> all of which are alluded to in the script. And that's where the satire really works, right? Is it a little on the nose at a couple of points? Absolutely. But our main character is such a smug prick, such an absolute self-shitting worm that it's actually pretty amusing watching him get thrashed and screwed with for the entire film. In total, Deadstream is executed to just like near perfection. Like Host, it does rely a lot on jump scares. Many of those jump scares are well-placed and well-timed. However, it leavens the whole loaf with a gag-cramming style of comedy, playfully mixing the horror elements with physical and verbal comedy beats. It evokes Evil Dead 2 in this regard, and I could see how it ends up inspiring maybe its own sort of cult following. And after covering some brutal films on this podcast, don't we all need a good laugh? Deadstream has genuinely done good. So much, uh, so much so that Joseph Winter directed a segment of, uh, in the genuinely fun VHS 99 with the hilarious and weird To Hell and Back. Between Deadstream and Host, we see how our relationship to technology is a ripe place for horror as commentary. Deadstream shares uh, this with a film we talked about last time, Ganjiam Haunted Asylum. I didn't talk about this during that episode, but I kind of want to talk about it here. Specifically, how live streaming uh, as a type of platform changes our relationship to celebrity. I am not the sort of person who is overly concerned with celebrities, really. But I have to acknowledge how live streams, especially where you can interact with the streamers, has an appeal. But I also have to acknowledge how a desire to see higher viewer counts or paid quote-unquote super chats uh, could very easily become a toxic thing. Everyone likes compliments here and there, but I genuinely don't think that the adulation or hero worship we see with celebrities is a good thing. I know, it's a very revolutionary take. And I respect anyone trying to make a living in this crazy world of ours. Uh, and when you have these sorts of democratized media platforms, all of this feels very inevitable. But there is another force that seems inevitable when it comes to new and democratized media, and that is a backlash against the whole thing. A punk rock DIY ethos is often a very powerful force, and it can get powerfully weird when it begins to look back with nostalgia or terror or terrified nostalgia for inspiration. To close out this mini-series, I am going to stray away from talking about a single film. Instead, I want to focus on what feels like a potentially very important new thing in horror media. It goes by a lot of names, but I'm going to stick with my favorite, and that is analog horror. Joe, are you as excited to talk about analog horror as I am? Terrified, my friend. <laughs> I think this is something trendy but also not so trendy that it's in the public eye it hasn't been disturbed yet you don't have mainstream media trying to make what we're going to talk about analog horror is this beautiful gem of creativity the closest thing to an entertaining or a shocking version of a student film or an independent project mm -hmm. where you just use the simplest thing, what you have available, and it takes it forward and makes something scary out of it. Yeah. I want everyone to hit pause. If this is not in the show notes, I'll be sure to add it. 
I want you to find a YouTube channel called Local 58. We're going to talk Local 58, my man. And I want you to come back when you're done. <laughs> Excellent. Talking about analog horror in a definitive way can feel like trying to nail pudding to a wall. It's a nebulous term, and it doesn't actually talk about a genre per se. It talks about the approach, the aesthetic, and the medium of a project. If you're doing a found footage film in the 1980s, using period-correct cameras and audio, well, well, you might argue that's analog horror. But if you're making a short film, using a public service announcement as your medium, and the style for the era is basically correct, then that's analog horror. And yes, the PSA thing is an unsubtle hint to one of my favorite analog horror projects. Well, sort of, anyway. As the name implies, analog horror seems to demand that the camera, or general medium, is pre-digital, or cannot be immediately pegged as digital. It's also worth noting that analog horror is, at the moment, a big thing in the horror world. It reminds me of the musical genre Vaporwave. For the uninitiated, Vaporwave is a musical genre playing with mostly electronic music, sometimes relying on distorted loops and samples from 1980s pop. Uh, it ends up creating this trippy, weird sound. I will include a YouTube link in the notes covering Vaporwave and a short documentary if you really want to know more. Anyway, back on track. Analog horror has been a creepy development that has slowly grown online for the last handful of years and it would take me entirely too long to list all the possible projects that could fall under this rubric. For our purposes, I'm going to talk about two projects and a subsequent movie spinoff. So let's start with Local 58 TV, or as it's better known, Local 58. Rerouting. Make a U-turn. Head east for one quarter of a mile, then follow signs for do not enter. Continue on unnamed road, then, in 300 feet, turn off your headlights. I mean, my Google Maps is already untrustworthy. I would stop trusting it about six miles ago. Rerouting. Make a U-turn. Your destination is behind you. Rerouting. In 500 feet, your destination will be on in 300 feet. Your destination in 250 feet. Rerouting. Your destination will be in 50 feet. You will arrive at your destination. It's so good. <laughs> I feel like the only way to start talking about Local 58 is uh, from this quote by Chris Lavina over at Bloody Disgusting. It's heavy stuff, right? You know so little, yet have been given just enough details to let your imagination run wild with possibilities. Is this the work of some hacker? Ghosts in the machine? A trick from a hostile alien force? It's hard to call it, and that's just within the first two and a half minute video. You don't know what to believe. Can your own eyes be trusted? End quote. Local 58 uses the familiar format of a local television station and its broadcasts, along with dashcam recordings and children's media. It injects these approaches with a menace that sometimes feels fantastical, such as cryptids or astronomical events. And other times, the idea of a rogue government psyops program or signal hackers seem to be playing hell with the viewer. Joe, I know you're a big fan of Local 58. What is it for you that makes this series work so well? It's the very simple burst of scary that every single person who has ever had a digital camera or a cassette recorder that you played with in your room when you first realized you could record yourself and then play it back, Every person who has ever done something like that, who has had that 30-second or two-minute experience, this has happened to you. You have watched that home movie or that clip, and you've seen it a hundred times, and then you just catch something that you don't expect to be there, and you start to think about it. You've had this experience in your life. The only thing that's changed is now you've got a cell phone. 
So for everyone who's been around long enough to have personal recorded media or personal filmed media before they had a cell phone, we've all seen this. It's been scary. And now we're going to twist the knife a little bit. There is nothing here that you haven't already seen Hollywood try. I misspoke a bit earlier. You've seen the shaky cam found footage everybody run from the giant creature film made. But how often have you seen it made well? And weren't we all tired of it a few years ago? Cloverfield comes to mind. Yeah, that was a real thing that was happening. And the creatures were supposed to look like they were really there. But now I want you to take your day-to-day life and do something that we have all forgotten about. You've forgotten about the emergency broadcast system of your local television that can still break in anytime it wants with that horrible, piercing sound. Local 58 had me after the first episode because driving around with a GPS, I don't know about you, that hits home for me. (laughs) And if that thing starts telling me to turn off in places that there are no roads... I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I cracked the joke earlier, uh, sort of off mic, that right at the point that it would tell me to take a, take a turn on unnamed road. Nope, it would be turned off at that point. I think I can fare home my own way. Or call an Uber one of the two. And Local 58 is one of my favorite ones to show off because it's a place I can send you very quickly to get the idea of what is analog horror. Go look at this. There are eight films... This whole thing will take you less than 20 minutes. And you will get the point by the time you're done. Now you can move on to some of the back rooms and a few other things that Lucas is going to talk about that I'm really excited to hear. (laughs) So Local 58 is the brainchild of Chris Straub, a cartoonist probably best known for a creepypasta called Candle Cove. Now, I'm going to have to put this in. I don't know if he wrote the original Candle Cove or he's the guy most responsible for creating the video iteration of it. Just go look up Candle Cove and everything it caused if you haven't heard of it by now. You have to go inside, Lucas. Straub's creative chops here are clear, and he has a powerful sense of how to use ambiguity as well as trusted symbols as weapons. There's subreddits and film analyses all over the internet for Local 58. They are attempting to piece together more details, like are all of these short films part of a bigger arc? Personally, Uh, I feel that almost doesn't matter and that the films work either as like standalone freakouts or as a part of a canon. I find something about the disjointed, less structured approach of his work to be really, really effective. And if you start watching the episodes back to back, it doesn't feel like an alternate reality. It instead feels like someone has injected some new dark fluid into reality. Imagine if the National Park Service's normally funny and informative Twitter presence started whispering cryptically of the horrors beneath Old Faithful. Or if they just showed you a trail cam footage piece of some shambling monstrosity traversing a ridgeline. Would you be concerned whether or not those are all connected? Or would you just stay the hell out of national parks? And admittedly, I know how silly that sounds but I want that. I really, really want that. (laughs) I want the National Park Service to be creepy. There are some trail cams that, out of context, some of the scariest and truly horrifying things you've ever seen. As soon as you get the true context, though, it becomes less scary. Sure. But the one with the trail cam that's supposed to be in the middle of nowhere or in the middle of the woods, miles away from civilization, and then you see a small child come walking towards it. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> if that's real, <laughs> that is horrifying in a completely different way. So before we move on to this next point, and I think it's kind of the, the zenith of the current movement, Joe's asked an interesting question off mic. Is analog horror, the Mandela effect, taken to the extreme? Um, Before I answer that, I just want to point out that there is a very well-known and well-liked analog horror series called the Mandela Catalog. So make of that what you will. (laughs) Um, But uh, to, to kind of riff on that idea a little bit, I think 
it's not so much the Mandela effect taken to an extreme. Um, for those who might not know, the Mandela effect is a name for a kind of phenomenon that people experience where they believe that uh, Nelson Mandela died in prison sometime in the 1980s or 1990s, when in reality, uh, Nelson Mandela was eventually released from prison and became a president of South Africa. But for some reason, people have very distinct memories of him dying in prison. And there's a lot of other phenomenon. Um, there's one that has to do with the Shaquille O'Neal movie. Uh, Kazam. Uh, Kazam. Thank you. God. Terrible movie. Uh, being mistaken for a movie that Sinbad, the comedian, was in that of a similar name that people swear exists, but no one can find copies of. Or another good example is... Do you remember the Berenstain Bears book? Okay, great. You remember those books? Awesome. Well, it wasn't Berenstain. It was Berenstain. And that one even caught me by surprise because I remember it being the Berenstain Bears, not the Berenstain <laughs> Bears. But it turns out, no, it was actually the Berenstain Bears. I didn't think I would bring up James Rolfe on a conversation about analog horror, but some of the homemade films that he has been making his entire life. Now, you know why I brought that up. You've seen this before. Some of what he's done is legitimately horrifying. And he was trying to make, and successfully did in my opinion, some independent, this is what I had and I used what I had, scary, horrifying films. Go watch The Head Incident. You're welcome. I bring it up because he did a full episode about the Berenstain Bears. <laughs> and he took it to the extreme and made it horrifying and made it scary. Filmed differently? We would be calling that analog horror. Sure. Um, I think the the interesting thing is is that you know, you make the the argument that it's kind of the Mandela effect taken to the extreme. Maybe, maybe not. I don't necessarily Not all the time. Not all the time, sure. But I think there's an argument to be made that we know our eyes can play tricks on us, right? We know that yes, the shadow looks like there's a monster moving in it, but it's just your eyes looking for for movement or shape. But I don't I don't know if that's necessarily the Mandela effect, though I do think the idea of perception and memory being a very flawed thing, being very easy to fool. Uh, I can't remember how the exact statement goes, but I heard uh, or read a, a article by a martial artist who said that a uh, martial artist named Ellis Omder, who said that uh, what I posit is that the reptilian brain is easy to fool, but it is honest. And I, I think that's largely true. And using analog uh, horror, using analog devices or analog imagery plays with that very well. And to that end, arguably the most popular and most effective analog horror series has to be Bite Sized Nightmares from director Kyle Edward Ball. Oh, very nice. The premise of this series is pretty simple. Ball attempts to recreate the look and feeling of his fans' nightmares using this sort of grainy, glitchy, experimental look. It seems like too simple of a premise, but once you watch a handful of episodes, you'll understand how eerie and unsettling they can be. They also live up to the bite-sized moniker. Most of them are just a few minutes long, and so you can consume an unbelievable amount of distressing content in a pretty short period of time. Uh, minor aside there, Ball also created a handful of weird ambient playlists running a few hours long each. They have titles like Nostalgic Old Kids Records But You're a Dead Child Ghost to Fall Asleep, Relax, or Study To and Nostalgic Horror Radio in a 1950s Bedroom to Fall Asleep To. I just think that thing is kind of fun. Then, in 2021... Ball releases a short film called Heck. Clocking in at about 30-ish minutes, Heck was a sign of things to come. It piles on his now very recognizable formula, but there's something more going on outside of its semi-coherent plot. There's an eeriness that his shorter works hinted at but couldn't fully realize. It went on to be a proof of concept that might be for the most interesting and most unusual horror film of the last 20 years, 2022's Skinnamarink. In this house, 
in this house. In this house. just makes you feel dirty watching it again we are admittedly a little late to the whole talk about skinnamarink party but this is a movie that i absolutely need to talk about personally and that's a challenge in and of itself skinnamarink isn't really a movie that lends itself to typical critique or commentary Kyle Edward Ball may not have intended on forcing a weird experimental film into the consciousness of modern horror, but that's what he ended up accomplishing. In a way, I think he accidentally created a, a sort of a racer head situation. Joe, do you, do you know what I mean by that? Now that you mention it, it's been a while since I've sat through Eraserhead, and I think the reason is it truly makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> the more I watch it, I see... Things that make me assess how the film makes me feel. And that was a bit of a ramble, so let me try to fix it. My favorite film of all time is Sling Blade. Hmm, okay. I would love to sit down with Billy Bob Thornton and talk to him about the long cut and the theatrical cut and which one he truly prefers, because for my money, the theatrical cut is a better story it leaves less to be literal. I say that's my favorite film because I watch it every year, at least. And the older I get, it changes how I view that film overall. And it always has. I may have seen it every year since it's been out. So I would have been 10 watching it with my uncle. And to see a film that has not changed fundamentally change based on how I view it tells me that experience, life, opinions, feelings are what changed the film for me. Now let's talk about Eraserhead. <laughs> Lucas and I once talked about Eraserhead. As Lynch once said, and if I'm quoting incorrectly, fix it, it's my most spiritual film. Why is that? I think you can sum up Eraserhead in one sentence. This is what it feels like to think about being a father after you've become one. I mean, maybe. You, um, you get uncomfortable. Things just seem alien to you. It just doesn't... Nothing is normal anymore. <laughs> and you want it to be. We're going to talk about Eraserhead at some point, I'm sure. But we're trying to talk about analog horror and skin a rink. So despite uh, this tirade, my point that I was trying to get to was how you see it changes over time Skinamarink is uncomfortable I think he's trying to show us what it felt like to be scared when you were a child and you had no perception I'm glad you brought that up because that's a point I'm, I'm gonna make at some further length what I meant when I said that I think he accidentally created a sort of eraser head situation is I think that Skinamarink could end up being one of these movies that gets watched and talked about a lot, especially in the confines of like the quote-unquote midnight movie phenomenon in the sense that it's it's kind of an experimental film in some regards, which again, we'll kind of deal with a little bit later on into, into our episode. But I think that it's also going to be, like Eraserhead, a hyper-divisive film. I have some examples of that later on. I know people who, who are in my camp. I adore Eraserhead. I think it's such a good movie in a lot of ways. But I know some people who straight up hate that movie. It's I mean, a hard watch, but not for a bad reason. <laughs> it's a, it is a, a violently divisive movie. So if you really sit down and watch Twin Peaks, it's boring sometimes. But if you get its Lynch, you enjoy the Twin Peaks experience. Eraserhead is not a good watch. Yeah. If you get it that it's Lynch and you love what Lynch does... It makes you uncomfortable, but it's for a good reason. <laughs> so let's try to talk about the plot of Skinamarink as much as one exists. 
Kevin and Kaylee are kids that apparently live with their father, or so it seems. Kevin's taken a fall, and Kaylee says that he may have been sleepwalking when it happened. After getting home from the hospital, their father calls, it seems like maybe their mother, and tells her that he was hurt, but it's not a serious injury. Shortly after this, the father disappears, as does the doors to the house, and the toilet, and the windows. They're trapped, and there is something in the parents' room wanting attention, and there might be something in this in the house's basement, distorting reality around them. As you might imagine, this is not the plot of next summer's biggest blockbuster. And for that matter, either is the cinematography or audio mixing. In fact, Skinnamarink is only really a movie in name only. It's like a two-hour-long episode of Bite-Sized Nightmares, but in my opinion, way more scary. It's analog horror's big cotillion, a coming out party, but not as an eligible marriage seeker or as announcing their identity. Analog horror has come out of its corner and it's throwing big punches here. But do all of those punches land? For me, the answer is an unreserved yes. Skinnamarink is, to me, genuinely scary. And I think that this movie catches on to a part of horror cinema verite that maybe it shouldn't actually, in a way. Instead of directly showing you the scary thing from a detached camera view, the movie is low to the ground. It's at kid height, you know? The sound and imagery is muffled and weird, distant from the viewer. It's not dreamlike in the sense of phantasmagoria. It's a nightmare but in a very specific way. It was my girlfriend who first nailed it for me, though I think I've heard it said elsewhere since. Skinnamarink manages to evoke the feeling of being a child in bed, having been shocked awake in the middle of the night. Was it a bad dream? Were your parents talking or arguing? And what was that noise in the hall or under the bed? What's keeping child-aged you awake at night. It's that feeling. It evokes childlike horror like no other film. But that's like my opinion, man. And let's just say that Skinnamarink is a very, very divisive film. Uh, Shudder managed to snap it up out of the gate and it was released to serious fanfare after having been leaked on the internet. But it only gets three out of Five ratings on Shudder, and that says nothing of the IMDb reviews. Which means, Joe, do you happen to have the harpsichord music handy? The following are some of the more <clears throat> colorful descriptions of the movie. Joe, let's trade off with these. I'll start. If you insist. User S. Griff says, I love films that challenge and are demanding to the viewer. I love independent cinema and slow burn films. But this film expects way too much from the viewer and becomes very irritating as a result. Even to hardened art house viewers, this movie expects too much. This movie feels like nightmare ASMR or a full length creepypasta. The only film I can, can compare it with regards to the pacing and somnolent effect of this movie has to be Beyond the Black Rainbow. I disagree. Nothing actually happens in that film until the ending when literally <laughs> nothing happens. All right. Next review, please, Joe. Jacob Mutt opines. If I would have turned this in as my final assignment back in film school, I would be an accountant now. Okay. User CDCRB asks us, do you enjoy looking at Lego blocks for two hours, ceilings, baseboards, dimly lit rooms, then this baby is for you, because that's all that's here. Supposedly a study in childhood fear, blah, blah, blah. Don't you be fooled by critics. This thing stinks. I was thinking that it must be some kind of joke that the filmmakers were pulling on me, trying to make me into a jerk for watching this piece of junk. And finally, Joe, if you'll take this. Act Action says, in the words of Abe Simpson, <clears throat> I've coughed up scarier stuff than that. 
Skinnamarink is a bland, pretentious, a film experimental only on the patience of the people who are watching it. It's all mood, no substance. It's proof you can make a film without a tripod or a light or an actual idea. I nearly <laughs> fell asleep. I tried to leave early after 35 minutes of nothing happening, but I ended up finishing it because the waiter didn't bring me my check until it was almost over anyhow. No, it's not just me, not for me. It's an awfully done film who can only find an audience in people who like things that are anti-mainstream. Whew. So yeah, it's not for everybody. And maybe at the end of the day, that's the point. And in a way, I think that's ultimately the thing here and with all of the films we've covered in the last handful of episodes. The original non-horror cinema verite movement is not for everyone, right? And it definitely wasn't for all the mainstream audiences out there. A French New Wave movie like The Devil, probably, might show up at an art house cinema near you, but it likely won't show up in your friend's Netflix recommendations either. Horror cinema verite is always going to end up being a rarefied taste. And as we know, I don't think there are any real guilty pleasures in cinema. So at the beginning of this episode, we asked the question, what happens with the democratization of media? And I, I think I've touched on this at other points in the series. Maybe I haven't. But if I haven't, let's go ahead and talk about that for a second. Prior to, I don't know, the maybe the early 2000s, media was a pretty strictly controlled thing. Sure, you had independent artists who were doing stuff, but by and large, if you saw something on TV, you had like maybe five or six channels to watch prior to cable, and all of them were tightly gatekept by big corporations, right? You know, ABC, NBC, CBS, etc. Okay, then fast forward a little bit, you get the early days of cable, so you get some HBO, things like that. But really, up until kind of like the creation of YouTube and uh, certainly before that, but definitely at that point, there was a strong element of a, a centralization of media. And then it became decentralized. It became a democratic process. The existence of like digital cameras as opposed to 35 millimeter film meant that a lot more people learned how to take good photographs. And I think it created a lot of good photographers, long story short, way more now than we had before but at the same time it moved some of the goalposts right now just anyone could take a picture how many people could take a good picture that number got a little weird and got a little different same thing with Bandcamp we've joked before about Bandcamp as a platform that now anyone can put out an album now whether or not it's it's going to be played on the radio or played on um, a movie or something different story Someone might pick it up. It's happened before, but it's not as guaranteed. Being decentralized, it's become diffuse, and people are able to hear it outside of the confines of, say, a radio station, but they're also less likely to be paid for it at the same time, not in the same way that they used to. It's, it's changed stardom and celebrity to a certain extent. And I think horror cinema verite, and I'll kind of touch on this as in our closing, uh, in a way, reflects that democratization, both good and bad. I, I think it amplifies both the good and bad. Joe, what do you think? Anytime you break from the mainstream, you're taking a risk or you're being artistic. It depends on how you want to approach the subject and how you want to portray yourself, the filmmaker or the songwriter. Do you want to make your own way or do you want to just do the opposite of normal to make everyone uncomfortable. It's always frustrating. It happens every five years. I want everybody to work together on this one. We're going to get through it. The big thing becomes bigger. And once the big thing becomes mainstream and you start seeing it on mainstream television, cable, and in the theater, you know you're going to be seeing that thing for the next 10 to 15 years. See the growth of Twitter in the past decade and a half. Now you see it everywhere. Is that a problem? Or is that an opportunity to move the goalpost again and say, how are we going to have our own little corner of this communication bubble? Because there is a quality to 
many cultures and communities within art where you want to stay exclusive. You mentioned it earlier. Um, paraphrasing, of course, because I haven't edited the show yet to know exactly <laughs> what you said. We want to do the opposite, but we also want to feel like things are our own. We want to feel like we belong, like we found them first. We all fail to share right out of the gate. The best example I have, Metallica releases the Black Album. Now your mom, your sister, your best friend who doesn't listen to heavy metal loves Metallica. You don't feel like they're the same band you've been listening to for 10 years because they went mainstream, man. That's not cool. Did you want those guys to grow when you were supporting them? Did you want them to be able to eat and pay their bills? Or do you want them just to be starving musicians for the rest of their lives? With art, we want the medium that we love to stay interesting. We want films to not be mainstream. If I want to go see the latest Marvel CGI cartoon that's supposed to look real, I can do that. And I'm going to be able to do that for a long time. But we had to get here somehow. We had to have a dozen and a half films before we could complain about how Marvel's starting to show the formula, guys. Analog horror reminds you, and this might be a thesis for horror cinema verte as a whole, it reminds you that the mainstream is not the only thing, and you don't have to look very hard to find something that you're looking for. Sometimes it feels like the thing you like no longer exists, so we move on. But somebody's got to have a VHS player out there. <laughs> Somebody has to have a way for me to watch this thing I haven't seen in a while. I want to encourage everyone to buy physical media whenever you can, because physical media will not leave. Even though you got to spend more money for it today, you're going to have it in 10 years when you reach back and say, yeah, I haven't watched this in a while. I have the Criterion Collection of House. I've been watching that for the past week. I'm hoping we're going to do an episode of that at some <laughs> point. But Skinamarink, something like that? I like how the modern taste of and the accessibility of creating something and putting it on the internet and getting people to watch it and talk about it and promote it on that wonderful thing we talk about hating called social media... But it reminds you that it wasn't always clean. Sometimes the scariest thing is what you perceive to be real because it's the first thing you saw. Grainy film. Unlit shadows. Shadows in the corner of the room that's not lit very well. Your eyes play tricks on you. Your mind plays a trick on you. Your ears your senses play a trick on you. It's not a pre-planned jump scare that you can see a mile away. It's something that you kept looking at because you were scared and you were trying to work it out. And the brain skipped a beat. We didn't go back and say, just stop looking at it. You know that thing that happens when you talk about the dark bathroom and you actually get up and turn the light on and it doesn't make you feel better? <laughs> That's what we're looking for, right? With analog horror and horror cinema verite. It's a great concept because it's not the norm. Because the normal isn't really scary, is it? Well, and... You know, it's one of those things that I think is so interesting. Um, when I started writing this script, I really kind of had an internal debate with myself about, well, I mean, is this really the horror cinema verite thing? Is this really imitating the feeling of a person with a camera standing there filming the thing that you're actually watching? And initially my answer was no. But, you know, in the, in the last few weeks, as I've had time to think about this, one of the things I love about analog horror, uh, bite-sized nightmares generally, and Skinamarink specifically, is that it reminds you of something that you were kind of alluding to in our in you know your last point, is that your eyes and your ears and your mind can play tricks on you. Absolutely. And we all acknowledge on some level that video manipulation, even with just like a pair of VCRs, 
is eminently achievable. Videos, as we have learned from this experiment called the internet, we have learned that video can be manipulated in a way and you can't trust it. If you can't trust your own eyes and your own ears, and for that matter, just your own perception, broadly speaking, why the hell would you trust a camera? A camera is an abstraction further out. It's already a degree removed from your actual, you know, terra firma biological body. We can't trust film because we can't trust ourselves. So where does that leave us? You know, has horror cinema verite like run its course or is it going to continue to mutate along with technology and other cultural influences? I wager that it will be with us for a long time, but it won't look like the Blair Witch Project or for that matter, it won't look like Skinnamarink when the next thing hits us. We are, for what it's worth, uh, going to have to get used to commentaries, meta-commentaries, and satires of our modern media forever. Joe, I mean, am I am I on point about that, you think? It's always going to change. What is old will be new again. You haven't seen anything new in a long time. But you also are missing out on some things that we would consider old. And bridging that gap and twisting it slightly... There's something new there. There's something interesting there. I think interesting is a better word because because old is new. That doesn't mean that we're going in a circle. It just means that we're walking the same path and we're going to land somewhere at a different angle and it's going to change. It's going to twist. It's going to give us something we feel differently about because someone took the time to remind us if you look at that just a little bit crooked, the whole story changes. Exactly. I mean, I think you really you really hit the nail on the head with that. You know, you said that every so often something has come along to, to twist it or make you look at it differently. It, and to me, what that does is it puts a genre or a concept on point. It puts it on notice. And you know what? I like that. I think that's a good thing, ultimately. Genres do need to be put on point. They do need to be put on notice. You know, no action movie from our parents' generation uh, looks like the Raid Redemption, right? Or the or the Carl Urban Dread movie. But soon enough, something will eventually come along that makes the Raid Redemption or the Carl Urban Dread seem just passe. Which means that eventually, analog horror and Skinnamarink will be old hat too, and we will be here for it when it happens. So what I have to say at the end of it is that makes me wonder, what do you think? Are the films I mentioned in this episode a great new step, the next big thing, or just another blip on the radar? Is Skinnamarink terrifying or ridiculous or both? You need to let us know. The Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on the Letterboxd app at Fright Lab Pod. We can also be found on Twitter at Fright underscore Lab underscore Pod. Joe. Will you let our infinitely patient audience know where they can hear your other podcasts? If you enjoy heavy metal subjects and you enjoy heavy metal music, you need to listen to all the podcasts we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. We have heavy metal subjects. Sometimes the line gets crossed and we end up talking about horror movies, horror concepts. It doesn't have to be heavy metal because these are all genres we all enjoy together. If you're a fan of nerdy topics, I don't know, Star Wars, Star Trek, take a look at the Nerf Herder Council. They're live on YouTube every other Wednesday. They have a podcast. You can find it in your podcast player of choice. And that is what I want you to do right now. If this is the first time you listen to The Fright Lab, please go back and listen to the first three episodes of Horror Cinema Verte. If this is not your first listen and you've been here since the beginning, we appreciate you. Take out your phone. Find the spot in your app that you can leave a five-star review or you can leave a thumbs up. We want to hear from you. You heard Lucas say at the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. Lucas, please tell everyone how much we appreciate and love independent media. 
So if you've made it four episodes into me talking about movies like The Blair Witch Project and Skin of a Rink, <laughs> you are a fucking trooper. You are a champ, and you have done something that I didn't know I was going to be able to do, let alone an audience. You've sat through four episodes of this, which we really appreciate. The Fright Lab is ultimately a DIY indie project. We have no sponsors, no backers, which means we can say what we want and do what we want. But it also means we've got to work hard for you guys. And you guys includes other horror podcast creators. It includes musicians and artists making horror-adjacent or horror-related art. If you're making a project like that, we want to hear it, and we want to plug your work on the air. Again, reach out to us at thefrightlabpodcast@gmail.com or on Twitter at frightlabpod, fright underscore lab underscore pod direction. All that aside, you want to get there fast, go on your own. But if you want to get there safe, go with your team. And we're trying to create that team here and now. As always, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. It is co-hosted and produced by the one and only Joe Wren. We appreciate you all so very much, and we will talk to you all very soon. Next time on The Fright Lab, untitled Bad Shark Movie episode. Oh, why are you ruining the surprise? It's been four episodes. They need a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> so true.